Left Brain Center with Bob Metz and the elusive Jeff Schlemmer is back today. Nice to have you back with us. Thank you. Nice to be back. People have said, what happened to Jeff? Did you fire him? No, we didn't, we didn't fire him. We don't fire anybody, but we do, from time to time, kind of bring different people in. You get slightly different perspectives, and it's nice to have Jeff back with us today. Uh, guys, I want to ask you about uh, an issue that, that uh, I first drew to our listeners' attention maybe 10 days ago. Is this, this business in New Brunswick uh, with the natives? Um, and we've talked about it this morning. I kind of gave a background on the legal situation and the implications, what the Supreme Court actually said and what the implications of what they said are, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I want to explore this morning, and again, I don't know whether this will be a left, right, and center kind of topic or not, but I think it's an important topic. To take a look at the issue of, of treaties and treaty rights and uh, the role of, of the Canadian government in preserving, uh, as, as uh, uh, Mr. Justice Binney said, uh, was the honor and integrity of the British Crown, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's an issue that, that has huge implications for our country and for the future of our country, in fact. Um, we have, I think, after, uh, and I don't think anybody who understands the situation will dispute that the natives were treated very badly by succeeding Canadian governments beyond beyond the bounds of okay you made a deal and uh, you know stick to your deal and we screwed you but that's okay stick to it anyway we went way beyond that uh, and I don't think any individual of goodwill would argue that if they've once they've studied the record however um, th the fact remains that that's in the past now we have to look to the future and what are we going to do there are claims across the country land claims and a variety of other claims this one again has drawn attention to the confusing nature of, of, of uh, treaty claims, and here's why, and I'm, I'm, I would guess that both my guests, we haven't talked about it, but I'm sure both of them are, are fairly conversant with this. The, the, you know, the, the crux of the matter was that two courts ruled that this treaty had been, both sides had walked away from it 200 years ago. It had been kind of in abeyance for 200 years that neither side had been interested in enforcing the terms of it. Uh, and ergo, it, it effectively ceased to exist, as did any claim on it. It took the Supreme Court of Canada to say, no, well, that doesn't really matter. And, uh, you know, the Crown did this, and the Crown did that, and the Crown did something else, and we have to uphold the honor of the Crown. Then the government weighs, oh, and, and the Supreme Court said, however, we recognize that treaty rights do not supersede the rights of the government to, to protect the environment, that the government can, and indeed probably should, Inter intercede, interfere any time when it sees treaty rights interfering with the pr preservation of the environment. And in fact, many people think that's what's going to, at least that's going to move us towards some kind of resolution to this. I guess off the top, and, and Jeff, I would start with you because I know you've got some, some background in, in, in the law here on, on this particular thing. We've talked about this before. Is this particular case, the fact that this key treaty essentially was walked away from both sides, kind of said, nah, forget about it, about 30 years or so after it was instituted. Does that make it significantly different from a lot of the other treaties that have come before the courts? Well, obviously it doesn't, and I'm not that familiar with, with the reasons for this particular case, but I can, uh, I can uh, assume that uh, some of the things that the court would have looked at were the fact that uh, one of the reasons that uh, there were lots of treaties that were not enforced for a long time was that the government, after negotiating them in order to get something it wanted at the time, uh, relatively soon after the government reneged on them and at the time there was no recourse for the natives the, the, although courts existed and certainly at that time the courts of England were the courts of the land in Canada natives were not allowed to go to court and in fact the government went so far as to pass legislation banning lawyers from representing mm -hmm. natives mm -hmm. so it was impossible for the natives to get any kind of uh, enforcement of these treaties and a treaty is a contract that's but, all it but is but this case was a little different I'll maybe give you a little more background on it the difference here was that the, 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 the treaty was a, a commercial agreement uh, to, to, to not to regulate 
well, I guess it did regulate, basically it regulated the fur trade in this area. And it did so for a couple of reasons. One, because the Micmacs wanted to make sure they got top dollar for their furs, and the Brits didn't want any trouble with the Micmacs. So the, what the British essentially did was set up a system whereby they guaranteed to pay top dollar so long as the Indians only traded at these truck houses. And the Indians, yeah, good deal, we get top dollar for the furs, you take care of us, yada, yada, yada. Everybody's happy they signed the deal. And according to the research I did, over the next 20 or 30 years, uh, many of the natives started to realize that even though we're getting top dollar, it's not necessarily always the most convenient place to go. It meant we, they couldn't trade anywhere else. They could only trade, trade with these truck houses. And that the, many of the natives, uh, in fact, according to what I can find out, virtually the majority of the natives, there were no voices really raised in opposition, said, you know, we'd rather just, you know, let's just forget about the deal. We'd rather have the same rights everybody else has. We can, you know, we can trap, we can fish, we can hunt, we can sell our, our produce any place we want. And they were indeed allowed to do that, which they had not been allowed to do under this. The, the Crown said, well, if that's what you want, fine. And away they go for 200 years. So, and at least that, that's what my research says. That it wasn't this sense that the, that the Crown broke this treaty at all. It's that both sides kind of went, well, okay, it served its purpose, and neither one of us are interested anymore. I guess from my perspective as a lawyer, what, what I do, and, and this may be a bad sort of a, a, a blindness or whatever, but for me, once the Supreme Court of Canada says something, that's the end of the story. And I, But it's I, not going to be the end here, because the government can invoke uh, whatever it did, I don't know what you call it, but they can set aside the, the decision of the Supreme Court insofar as it grants these rights. And the Supreme Court said, it, said itself in, in its ruling. It recognizes that the government can now say... Well, if the environment's been jeopardy, then, then this doesn't apply. Well, what's interesting about this case for me are a couple of things. One is that uh, this is a, uh, a treaty negotiated not about individual rights, but about rights between sovereign nations. That's the way they negotiated them at that time. And the thing, a couple of things surprised me. To me, it's easier to understand what's happened here if instead of saying that the Mi'kmaq had this right under this treaty, if you said instead that they found that the United States had this right under treaty. And that's happened in the past. Uh, uh, you may recall there was a famous um, uh, commission that determined the, um, the border between British Columbia and Alaska, where there was a uh, panel of six uh, people, uh, three Americans, uh, two Canadians, and one Brit, who decided where the border was as to whether it came to the outside edge of the peninsulas along the uh, coast or the inside. Mm -hmm. And the Canadians argued the ins or, or the outside because it would give less land. The Americans wanted more. Anyway, in that case, uh, the, the Brit turned coat and voted with the Americans. And we lost a ton of land in that case. Uh, to me, what's interesting is that this is, uh, is a finding by the court that there was uh, a treaty between two sovereign nations. And what that says to me is that the Mi'kmaq have a perfect right to enforce restrictions on uh, the fishing, on the lobster fishing that's an issue here, and I would have thought that the government of Canada would have had a, a backup plan in the event that they lose cases, because sometimes you lose cases, mm -hmm. and they would have been negotiating with these guys for a while to get regulations in place, and they can say, look, we'll help you to enforce them, but it's clear that somebody has the right to restrict lobster fishing out there. It's a question of who it is. Well, and that's not how I read it. I don't read any question of restriction. All it says is that the, uh, that the natives have the right to provide the necessaries of life, which as uh, interpreted in a 1993 ruling, uh, defined as a, oh no, I forgot, a modest, oh, I've got it here somewhere, a modest living, is that what it said was the terminology? So it, does, it didn't give them the right to control the fishery. Well, a treaty, treaty is a, uh, a contract, a settlement between two nations. Moderate livelihood, that that's all they've been granted, that an individual native, individual aboriginal, is allowed to 
extract a moderate livelihood from from the fishery in this case. And again, I, I can't go too far into uh, into constitutional law because it's not my expertise, but my understanding is that treaties do not set out individual rights. Treaties set out rights between two parties, and the parties in this case are the government of Canada and the Mi'kmaq Nation. And, and, Mi'kmaq and Nation in that has sentence. government, and that government can, can regulate its own people any way it wants to on those issues. So again, if the Mi'kmaq uh, uh, First Nation were to pass a rule saying, okay, well, individual people in our community are only allowed to take whatever, a hundred mm -hmm. lobster, whatever, mm -hmm. that's enforceable. Mm -hmm. that's okay, yeah, yeah. And that there's nothing to stop them from doing that. I would have thought that the government, assuming that they're interested in following constitutional law, would say to the Mi'kmaq uh, government, would you please pass that law right away, put a moratorium on for this year, we'll mm -hmm. negotiate over the next year and try and get something worked out we can all agree on. Um, look, we'll make the Canadian government should say, we'll uh, give you the use of our police forces to enforce whatever law you pass, and then it's an, uh, and then that's it. That basically the there's a legal way to do all this and to have the fishery minister involved to me is totally the wrong person and the person who deals between governments the secretary of state for instance or or certainly the the minister for uh, first nations are the people who should be dealing with it because the court didn't say it's free season anybody can do whatever they want the court said the canadian government isn't in charge of this the micmac is in charge of this so the government should be saying to the micmac would you get on this right away we were caught flat-footed we got a, a big problem here would you cooperate with us in uh, in agreeing to a moratorium this Which year indeed is what we understand they're attempting to do right now. One yeah. of the fronts are taken. It would have been nice if they did it a year ago. It, <laughs> it sure would have. Bob, how do you read this whole thing? Well, Jeff has certainly identified the issue when he said that, that what you've got is a treaty, which is not a contract between individuals, but between nations. The fact that we're thinking like that is, means that we do acknowledge uh, um, that the Aboriginal groups involved are separate nations. Where <laughs> the court case is, is saying that. Mm -hmm. and, and if it wasn't that, then we would be saying that this is a contract or a treaty with a race or a culture, which is, you don't sign treaties with races and cultures. Mm -hmm. You do that between individuals or representatives of an official body. So, you know, therein lies the problem. Fundamentally, every dispute is over property and who has a right to it and who owns what. And in this case, we have a situation where uh, what is called economically is in the commons. Um, where you know you have lobster fishing and things over uh, parts of the ocean that are not technically owned privately by anyone mm -hmm. and therefore you you result in this uh, phenomenon called the tragedy of the commons which is what has caused a lot of species extinction in parts of Africa um, if nobody owns it then everybody does and everybody thinks they have a right to it mm -hmm. and that uh, to resolve such disputes, we have to define who has rights to things and who owns them and who properly has a right to them. What's very interesting here is that amongst the aboriginals themselves, they are faced with an internal conflict in the philosophy of their culture. Because what they need in order to press their case and make and have any rights in the situation are the very property rights in the in the conventions of, of the British system, let us say, uh, that they want to reject at the same time and not have to live with. So you can't, you know, it's, the day is long past gone that we can treat uh, the wilderness just like anybody's no man land, you know, and go out and shoot and hunt and do whatever you want. Um, I don't think also that a treaty that was, you know, 300 years old um, necessarily has validity anymore, especially when both parties to the initial treaty, uh, first of all, nobody's alive anymore who was party to those things, and second of all, um, they've already sort of, by their actions, relinquished an interest in that agreement. 
and uh, reminiscent of what you talked about the Micmacs, you know, uh, they were quite happy when they were getting the top dollar when they were first going to their trading posts, but then they found that this restriction on their trade proved to be a disadvantage, you know, so it, it's, it's like, you know, they had their, er, their first egg marketing board, only it was mm -hmm. a fur marketing board, mm -hmm. and uh, as always, these things look good when you first start into them, when you're trying to create some kind of a monopoly, and uh, eventually you find that you're the one being taken advantage of, even though you thought you were getting a deal. But those are all arguments that the government of Canada made on our behalf through every court level in Canada, and those arguments were fully canvassed by the top lawyers in Canada and were rejected by the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada are not wildlife, well, you and I may disagree about this, but mm -hmm. these are white-haired old people who generally are quite conservative and they are extremely knowledgeable in the law. So they've thought about all this stuff and they've listened to those arguments and they've said, well, I'm sorry, that's just not, uh, that's not what, what uh, determines the case in this case. Those things may be well, they're, correct, they're stuck with the law. legal reasons why they don't apply. And, and, but the issue, Jeff, is uh, are the laws that are in place proper and appropriate? If I was a lawyer or a judge, I'd certainly have to deal with the laws that's given to me, even if I disagreed with it. I mean, well, in this case, it's a contract they're handed. But to me, the, the other thing that the government has not done it astounds me is that they haven't come forward and said okay we'll implement like a tags program like they had for the cod fishery when the cod fishery dried up suddenly for reasons beyond control of the government fisher people out uh, on the east coast could not fish so the government brings in a program to say we will compensate you you know because we're a collective we want to make sure that the whole burden of this thing having happened doesn't fall on a few people and and the government should be doing the same thing and i would hope that pretty soon some lawyers out there get together and start an action against the federal government for negligence for not protecting the uh, the interests of these lobster fishermen who have relied on the government. The government has assured them throughout. I agree. Don't worry, we're in charge of this. We know what we're doing. We'll protect your rights. Blah blah blah. Then all of a sudden, the federal government turns out to bombs out, loses totally. But you can't sue the government or something like that, can you? I think you probably can. There are lots of smart lawyers out there who figure out a way to do it. But certainly, the government has screwed up, no matter how you slice it. And to me, rather than saying that that whole loss is going to fall on a very few people, to me, it's a much smarter idea for the government to say it's going to fall on us collectively and we'll provide um, some money to get you over this year because this thing has caught us all flat-footed, mm -hmm. so don't worry about it. Don't be out going out burning fishing boats. Don't be going out taking lawn to your own hand. You know, you've paid taxes all these years and now we're going to look after you for this year and we're going to get negotiating like crazy and try and get something in place for next year and we'll get over this. But what, I don't understand why you would pay them for this year because the the non-natives are not fishing now anyway. They're not taking lobster. Now it's, it's out of season. Well, I guess, the, uh, and, and again, I, I may not be that familiar with the issue, but the the, the lobster fishermen out there seem to be awfully mad at, uh, at something. Well, they seem to think it's going to affect their livelihood. They're afraid that the, that the natives, by fishing when they're not supposed during the during the mating season and the spawning season, that they're going to destroy the fishery. So again, from my standpoint as the government, among other things, what you do is you assure the lobster fishermen, look, this loss, if it becomes a loss, isn't going to fall on you. It's something that we will bear. If we screwed up, we'll pay for it. If, the, if, it, if you're right, and if the stocks are destroyed for three years or five years or whatever it is, we'll make sure you're looked after. And if they did that, you wouldn't have this kind of hysteria going on out there. Because the first thing people want is to know their families are going to be looked after. Mm -hmm. They're not going to lose everything. Mm -hmm. And the government could easily, like, the cost we're talking about for the government is minuscule compared to, to what these guys spend on, on uh, well, all kinds of things. But, uh, <laughs> you know, for the government to come in and say, here's $25 million. It's a fund that we're going to set up today, and it's going to compensate any lobster fisher person who loses money as a result of our screw-up here, that would go an awful long ways to calming things down and give people some time to come to grips with the new 
reality and say, okay, let's get let's get our ducks in a row. Let's get figured out here because they will work something out. It's just a question of who loses in the meantime. We're going to pause for just a second. We don't want anybody to lose here. This is Left, Right, and Center on 1290 CJBK. Lines, of course, as always, are open. 643-1290, star-1290 on the Cantel, and our live email into the studio, Chapman at imessaging.net. Back with more with Jeff and Bob after this. This is Talk of the Town, and it's Left, Right, and Center with Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz, and we're talking about... I'm not sure what we're talking We're not talking about Native rights, really. I think we've kind of got a grip on that. We're just kind of talking about how this impacts on all of us, these uh, these results of these court cases that keep coming down and the, it's impacting on the East Coast and the fishermen and creating quite a nasty situation. John joins us on the telephone. Hello, John. Uh, good morning, Jim. Uh, what troubles me about the, this ruling by the, the Supreme Court is the fact that I find it disturbing that these men of great knowledge and understanding of the ways of man have not considered what the consequences would be. Uh, the uh, Indians have a, a right, basically, to uh, supply their own uh, home or their own needs. But when you've got a situation where they've given somebody a greater right, which, uh, you know, adversely affects the possible uh, ability of the others to sustain a living, Nature can only supply so much, Jim. You know that. I know that. Mm -hmm. One of the difficulties with the fishing is that everybody fished until the oceans could supply no more fish, and then we have this situation. The the culture of the native people has always been presented on the basis that they have great concern for the environment and Mother Earth. Now, if they're going to catch lobsters for two months before anybody else does, that means that they have first kick of the cat, and if there's any left, you might get some. Mm-hmm. as far as the other people are concerned. Yeah. So the argument basically is what were in the judge's mind to have made a ruling like that knowing full well what the consequences well, unless they're well, totally well, inept as far as understanding human nature. Let me ask our lawyer that question and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to couch it this way. Is, it, is any part of the court's responsibility to consider consequences, or is it their job simply to rule on what the law says, as they, or what they interpret the law to say? Well, that's a good question, and I noticed that uh, Helen Connell had written a column about this in the paper today, and she had suggested that the, go- that the court should have uh, provided time, uh, delayed the uh, implementation of the decision, and they've done that in the past in cases where they've struck down legislation, and what they've said is, we find this legislation to be unconstitutional, but we'll give the government six months to pass legislation that is constitutional. Uh, The other thing that, of course, uh, can happen is that the court decides when to release things, uh, and and one might suggest, I suppose, that it was was insensitive of the court to release it at what seems to be an ecologically particularly critical time. Now, whether they would know that or not, I don't know. But formally speaking, um, it's generally not the job of the courts to consider the consequences of its decisions, which may seem kind of anomalous, but their job is there to enforce the law and to determine what the law is. And usually the Supreme Court of Canada only deals with the tough cases, the ones where uh, it's really hard to figure out. Uh, and but but their job, strictly speaking, is to uh, is to just uh, figure out what the law is and let you know what it is. Now, realistically, though, as I've said, in some cases they have um, done things like delaying decisions or uh, delaying implementation of decisions because of practical problems. Like they don't want to find uh, they strike down a section of the criminal code that's an important section. They don't want to say tomorrow suddenly, uh, you know, rapists go free or something, they could give them time. And perhaps they should have uh, done that in this case. Again, I don't know if they were aware of the of the timing being so bad. Last word to you, John? Oh, well, uh, all I'm saying is that 
there's a contradiction here as far as the native people themselves, and there's nobody who will support the native people more than myself, but there has to be good judgment and understanding of, of, you know, of the ways of man and what this planet can uh, yeah, no. su supply us with. And uh, if they make this claim about uh, their concern for Mother Earth and, and things like that, and it supplying them with the needs of life, then we have a great contradiction here. That's a good point. Thanks, John. Uh, Appreciate fine. it. Now, to be fair, some of the native leaders have said that, that what they're doing out there is not going to destroy the fishery, that they're taking minimal numbers, that this is not a danger to anybody. So they've, some of them have made the point that we are still, we still see ourselves as the conservators of the earth. Well, that brings up the interesting question. Like John, John said, uh, like he, when, he, when he first said, uh, who are these people who aren't considering these consequences? I wasn't sure whether he was talking about the judges of today or the people who originally drafted the first treaty, mm. because the same question could be asked about, um, you know, the people 300 years, years ago certainly could not have foreseen the society of today no. or the technology that we have today. And when the court says or the treaty says that uh, the natives are allowed to provide the necessities of, you said, moderate, was it moderate livelihood uh, was the phrase? It? I think that was the phrase, yes. Now, what a moderate is, livelihood. What, what does that mean? Uh, uh, That's to, not defined. A right to survival or a right to trade? That's not okay. defined. You know, and, what, and what's its opposite? An extreme livelihood? <laughs> or, uh, you know, like, what do they mean by this? Yeah, excessive, excessive livelihood? <laughs> because even if they do, uh, from an economic point, forgetting the, uh, the environmental issue right now, but if they provided more lobsters for more people, well, that would provide more livelihood and, and, and you know, a means of living, because it's a meal, mm -hmm. uh, to more people. So I don't think that's what the court had in mind, though, when they first said that. But, but to resolve this thing, I mean, temporarily you can do almost anything. The government can basically pass a law at whim if it wants to. But in the long term, what we have here is a problem where you have different competing interests with rights to the same resource or with supposed rights to the same mm -hmm. resource. So you have to have a police there that treats all those competing interests equally. And if, as, as John mentioned, you know, he talked about a greater right, um, now, of course, in the sense of individual rights, all rights are equal. There are no greater or lesser rights. But in terms of property and in terms of certain activity or rights to certain property, like you have a greater right to your house than I do, mm -hmm. um, these are the issues that have to be defined. And unless we define them... But the court sort of did that. I mean, the court didn't say that the, that the natives now have control over the entire fishery. It, did, it manifestly did not say that. What it said was that they are exempt from the normal restrictions placed on non-native fishers. And that's essentially all it said, because that treaty had said that, that the natives were allowed to provide the, for the necessaries, was the word then, and that's been interpreted by a judge in 1993 well, as, this, as this moderate livelihood, that they are entitled to take a moderate livelihood from the fishery whenever they feel like it. Then wouldn't you agree that, uh, therefore, the government owns the fisheries and the government owns the resources? Because since they're making all the decisions, and why don't we just acknowledge that this is the property of the government, and that the deals they make with whoever they choose to make are those deals. And then the, the only issue becomes the validity of the contracts or lack thereof uh, with the people they make promises to. Well, they do, of course, they do that. They, they negotiate uh, with the Americans all the time about fishing and, and all kinds of other resources. On an international basis. Yeah, that, uh, and then individual companies, I guess, can negotiate with, the, with our government for, uh, for licenses as to how much they're going to be allowed to fish. Uh, or do whatever, but but yeah, that that's that's what happens. And uh, from my end of it, I guess uh, uh, again, uh, at a point I lost it there. But 
uh, if I can come back to something that, that again frustrates me about the government is that uh, I, again the government is all kinds of people dealing with crisis management and they have consultants they can bring in and so on and it must be a bit of a uh, dilemma for the government because right now nobody seems to be really blaming them they're not burning down MPs offices they're no. burning down natives things and from the standpoint of the government do you want to walk in and say don't blame those guys it's us that screwed up you know take out your anger on us and it seems like the government's a bit reluctant to do that and yet to me that seems that that's reality those are the people who should be uh, at fault for it again from the standpoint of the government I, I would hope that they're sitting back and trying to figure out all the elements of human nature that are at work right now one of them is that I think that there's a hysteria that's sort of developed around it and mm -hmm. I don't know for instance is it true that uh, that the, the, the that the lobsters will be wiped out is it forever is it for a year what is well, the situation this is, this is something we all ha are lacking in terms of our current discussion of this because when, when I see something like uh, a court saying that natives are entitled to a moderate livelihood, I want to know why non-natives aren't. Aren't they entitled to a moderate livelihood? Can non-natives go out there and fish in the same old-fashioned ways if they don't use their uh, more modern equipment and, 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 and do this? Or is there a greater responsibility on the part of the, of the fishery ministry? And you said, Jeff, that they don't have a role in this. Um, they do, as long as these fisheries are not owned by anyone because who is going to take care of the supplies and who's going to make sure that all the interests that are having access to these resources know what the status of the resource is. You well, know? they have to work together. For uh, mind of what I'm saying is that the court has said that they've carved out a piece of the fishery uh, business and said the, the Canadian Fishery Ministry does not have jurisdiction over this. It's not their bailiwick. It's the, it's the re responsibility of the First Nation. So from a legal standpoint, that little part of the fishery, and it is a small part of it, is not under the control of the fishery uh, ministry. So yeah, they would still have to work with them and they would have to be aware of what they're doing and blah, blah, blah. The same as they have to be... Uh, well, then you're saying that's it, that that part of the fishery is owned by the natives. Uh, no, it's it's you know it's this under the, the jurisdiction Nobody of wants the to First admit Nation what's government. What's going on? It's the access. It's you an know? issue of access. I'm telling you exactly though. what's happening. Well, it's an issue of access. The Canadian access. government does not own fisheries. The Canadian government is responsible for fisheries and has as uh, sovereign over them. And controls access over right. the fisheries. But, 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 but the same is First access. Nation has that also. When you but own they, when you own your home, you have access to it. You have the key to the front door. Yeah, but I have access to the White Oaks Mall. I don't own that because the owners have granted you that access. This is what I'm saying. If you're an owner, yeah, you can let me into your house too. But you seem to but, be saying the Canadian government owns all this stuff. But I don't they, have they don't a right to house, go into your but house. But they certainly have some power over it. The Canadian government doesn't own your house, but they have contr uh, uh, control over it in certain ways. Uh, it's the same here. Well, not not control. The government is the referee that's supposed to to in ensure that I do have my rights to my house. That's the control they have. They're my they're my ultimate stick or gun, if you will, to protect my property. That's, yeah. it's, that is a totally different thing from control. Control is when they tell me uh, what I can do in my home. Uh, you know, it was uh, Pierre Trudeau who said that the nation had no business in the bed, or, or the, the state, state had no business in the bed. bedroom of the nation, yeah. but then moved the state immediately into every other room of the house. <laughs> you know, But again, what, what happens is that there are some hard walls that you butt up against, and they happen between borders, typically. And again, you can have water that uh, looks the same as our Canadian water, but happens to be fall over a, an invisible line decided hundreds of years ago, and, w and the Canadian fishery has no jurisdiction there at all. And in the same way, the court has said, well, you have no jurisdiction over this particular aspect of, of Canadian water either, and it's because of constitutional law that goes back a long ways. Okay, let's go to the phones. And Rob's with us. Hi, Rob. Hi. Yes, sir. Uh, Jim, I was just wondering, uh, you know, what's happened to the uh, concept of, of equality uh, of, of all Canadians? Um, it seems to me that uh, this is a typical example of... Uh, 
you know, how how there's one law for Indians and, and all these special interest groups and then one law for all the rest of them. Well, I think you have to be careful when you say Indians and all these other special interest groups. There is definitely a different approach to law for Indians. And Jeff made the point earlier, the reason for that is when it comes to treaties is that these were treaties that were drafted and signed by sovereign nations, and they both sides were acknowledged to be sovereign nations. Yes, that's true, but, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, uh, the, the, I, I just don't see how treaties signed 300 years ago by, by people that aren't even alive today ha have the validity that the, the courts are, are, are giving to them. Um, well, at, at what point, know, at what point, is, at what point, thing, laws aren't sacrosanct. You yeah, know, but at can, what point would you, does the, does the time element come into I mean, how long do you have to be dead before what you did doesn't matter? Well, I, I mean, nobody know, who signed the Confederation is alive today. Does that mean Confederation isn't valid anymore? No, but I'm just I'm just saying that you know, uh, laws and agreements can be changed over time to reflect uh, modern reality. They can. They can be changed between so sovereign individuals or or representatives of sovereign states, as Bob pointed out earlier. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean. I, I'm not happy about this either, in a broad sense, Rob. But you know, we have to we have to reflect on the fact that time does not necessarily invalidate an agreement. No, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that uh, it should be forever uh, on the other side of the coin either. Well, who should determine when the end of it comes then? Well, well let's let's ask a question. Let's 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 bring the environmental issue in here. Are we saying then that that the natives? Let, what what would what what if the court had ruled that the natives do have a right to deplete this resource right to the end till it's gone and will never renew itself? Do we go along with that? Is that a correct thing to do because we had a treaty that was signed 300 years ago? Or do we have to measure that, th that agreement in light of current facts? Because y you can't take something 300 years ago. They'd, you know, they didn't even know about cars. Or but again, or we, expect, we expect the court to exercise its wisdom in this case. And in fact, it was not a unanimous decision. Some of the justices dissented from this. There was a mo minority dissenting. Uh, uh, um, yeah, which often happens on closed cases. But uh, from my end of it, again, the easiest way for me to think of from a legal perspective is to say, what if the court had ruled that the Americans have a right to come in and do some stuff in Canada? Can we just ignore that and say, yeah, but we think that it's going to be hard on well, our environment, so we're going to ignore international see, the law. Problem from the we just can't do that and be part of, of the world. We've, we've, we've you know, the part only... of international law which recognizes treaties, and we can't just say, we'll ignore a treaty if we think it's going to hurt us. Well, I think that we have one solution that can solve everyone's problems, and that's to privatize the area, the area that's in dispute, and, and actually give it to the people who supposedly own it, whether that be the natives or the, or the, or the, the, the commercial fisheries. Because unless there is an interest attached to the, that property in that area, uh, you know, we're, we're, the lobsters are going to be fished to extinction unless no, the government does its job. But, the and, and but if the government does do its, its job... But it's not doing its job by no, the very fact of the way it's handling well, the case nobody's, right now. nobody's complained about the government's uh, regulation of the lobster fishery. That hasn't been the issue. But the it issue. is a private industry. The government doesn't own any of the lobster traps. It's all private, but it's regulated by government. And, and, and I can't see any way within a country that you can take the government out of the equation. They're going to regulate it. Aside from the question of whether, so, whether companies are economically responsible... Last word to you then, Rob. Well, I, I just think it's uh, fundamentally wrong, and I think it's probably unconstitutional as well that, that, that the government is playing favorites and doing that through laws that, uh, you know, 
that, that discriminate against one Canadian from another. Yeah, and but I think the that, uh, even under the Constitution, there's there's acknowledgement in there of special status for the First Nations. They are not Canadians like you and me. Right, and I think that's wrong. I think all Canadians should be equal. I don't think we should have one law for Natives and one law for white men and mm-hmm. one law for this special interest group and another law for the taxpayer. Well, the Supreme Court disagrees you know, with and you, at I, least I on the Native issue. I think that a lot of times that what we lose sight of is that the laws are not sacrosanct. The law can be an ass. You know, and and oftentimes it is, and I think this is a typical example uh, that's that's you know in the forefront of our, our thoughts today. All right, thanks for the call, Rob. No problem. Appreciate it. All right, guys, I want to change the focus a little wee bit into to what Rob was talking about. Let's suppose that next week or next year we had a constitutional convention at which a majority of people voted and did whatever had to be done to amend the Constitution to say there is no more special status for First Nations people, nor for anybody else in this country. We are all equal under the law, period, end of story. A, could we do that? Not legally, but we, we can do anything. Uh, we have guns, we have weapons. Why uh, couldn't we do it legally? If, if well, Because there, there is a mechanism for amending the Constitution, isn't there? Yeah, what you're saying is that we'll get together and pass a law that says that we can renege on all these international agreements that we've entered into. It's like when Brazil defaults on its debt. Mm-hmm. It can do it. The, mm-hmm. Brazil is still there the next day, mm-hmm. but it has broken international law. There may be consequences, maybe not. In Canada, if we said, okay, well, there are certain laws that that, uh, that we've agreed to, again, as an international community about honoring treaties. Here's some treaties we're just not going to honor anymore. We're just, we don't want to do this anymore. It's divisive. People don't understand why natives have this special status. It causes a lot of trouble, so we're just going to renege on all these mm-hmm. international agreements. Well, you know, Canada would still be there the next day w- whether our status uh, internationally would be uh, diminished because... Oh, there are a lot of people whining at the United Nations and, and at UNESCO, but yeah. that, that'd be the end of it. Well, again, I think Who that, else would complain? I think that, that ultimately it comes back to a question of whether of whether we're bothered by things about, like, do we see ourselves well, as people with integrity or, or basically are we opportunists? You know, at the end of the day, we can renege on all kinds but Rob's of things. Ar- Rob's argument con- was, though, that ultimately what would result is a pretty equitable uh, result is that everybody would be equal before the law. What's oh, wrong yeah. with that? Well, you're well again, asking, it's illegal. You're asking, it's illegal. That's the, the main problem. But again, if you go beyond that and say, okay, we're prepared to break the law, are we prepared to break it for this? Is this the most important pressing thing in the world that is worth us losing all our credibility in the world? We're going to go out and break some laws, but we think it's for an important cause. Well, the ultimate result Maybe would be, would, would, the ultimate result is what the thousands of people gave their lives for in the French Revolution, which was egalité, right? Oh, no. That, no. Right now we have egalité. Right now we theoretically have equal access before the law. The laws are supposed to enforce these contracts, right. these treaties. Mm-hmm. If we say, okay, we're not going to enforce it for these people anymore, they don't have equality. They have lost the equality because the courts will not enforce them. But the government's rights. already done that. Uh, Try to get no. a non-native policeman on a reserve in this country. No, again, what comes back to, again, is that we have these contracts that we signed, and, and all I hear from people saying over and over again is, we didn't negotiate a good deal 200 years ago. We should have negotiated a better deal where we would have said, you have no special rights. We've come over here, and we're going to negotiate with you, and basically what we're saying is, you are now us. Because well, we're, we're the victors. Now, in the United we States, didn't that negotiate to a anything. larger extent. Well, yeah. We, you and I were our, there. Our Jeff, representatives like, 200 years no, ago. they weren't our representatives. That's the whole flaw in the thinking Now, of we this. can say that 200 years ago, people were idiots, and they came over and negotiated deals when they could have got much better deals. I, I don't happen to think that's true. I think that in those days, we were, we were uh, generally uh, a society that was very expansionistic. Jeff, there were all kinds are, are of reasons why that, they negotiated Are you saying that our contracts. political leaders of today, of, of the year 1999, uh, 
legally represent the people that are going to be born in the year 2300? Are you telling me that right now? Well, of course, if they sign a contract on well, their behalf. I just don't, so that's those the people, thing that I don't understand so, so is why those, people say when something gets old, you can ignore it. The criminal code is 100 years old this week, so we will ignore it. Everybody who passed it is dead, so it's gone. Well, if the Magna it's a, if Carta it's a, was passed, but you know, we want to know why? Ago, it's gone. Because the DNA Act in rational law, things old. do <laughs> expire when they're old. Patents expire when they're old. No, they Copyrights expire, expire when, the when they're old. law says they expire. They don't expire well, all by themselves. In you rational law, you don't have to worry that you'll wake up expiry. tomorrow and the criminal code will be gone. You don't have to worry about that. It's not going to happen. Laws don't have a best before date unless it's in the law. Well, and that does I, happen. Under, I understand that, Jeff, but we're talking about what is the appropriate thing to do, not what yeah, is. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, and and well, you're saying we should go back 200 years and have an end date on this and say no, these treaties have, will only be enforced for 100 years and after that they're not enforced. We should apply the same principles to that those contracts as we would to any other contract. Yeah. Every contract has its has its lifespan and it's basically it's determined by the, the terms of the contract. Law, that's true. And and even others that aren't that are affected by law, like copyright patents, all these things expire after a certain time. By law. Um, that's right. Yes, but that's because they don't the, that law is themselves. appropriate. Right, and the reason is because so when I'm saying we it, have they to change it's the going law to have an end date to put an end date to all of these old con uh, contracts and agreements, which I don't think should be applying today. Well, that's fine, and, and I again, don't think that we today have a right to make uh, laws and and create decisions for people who aren't born yet. That's just not appropriate for any nation to but assume such a But that's going to happen. Every law we pass today will apply to children born tomorrow, unless it says it doesn't apply to them. It happens all the time. We pass laws. We I'm create not arguing a government that, that applies we're, to people. We're here to argue yet. whether it's right or wrong, not whether it happens. For heaven's sake, some sakes, people have stability, but is that right? The option, <laughs> the alternative of saying that laws will exist until we say they don't exist. People like that stability, or other people who may say we'd like every year randomly a law to just vanish. The only stability that would, be, that would worry law. me. I would be worried about that. The only stability in laws those are those laws that ensure that individual rights continue to exist. I want to know that the, that my great great grandchildren or whoever three generations, five generations from now will still have the right to make individual choices and won't be told uh, what to smoke, what to eat, where to fish, what to do, you know, by some government, but by like some today. more... If we don't have laws well, for it, then if you can change the law today, it'll apply to them tomorrow. But from our end of it, the other question is, did we negotiate a good deal 200 years ago? Of course, it was a terrific deal. We came over to a land, and under international law, it wasn't our land. We negotiated a deal saying, do you mind if we take all this fish out of oh, here for hundreds of years? What international law did we have in 1770? It certainly was. There have been lawyers yeah. around since all it was. Good God. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones where Ed's waiting. Hi, Ed. Yeah, hi, Jim. Yes, sir. Uh, this whole question of uh, who negotiated the deal back raised the point for me. Uh, the deals were negotiated by a separate country. They were negotiated by Britain, and Canada has since become an independent country from Britain. Say, as an example, Quebec secedes from Canada over the next little while, which is a very realistic possibility. Are they still bound by the old treaties negotiated by England back 200 years ago? Well, that's a good point. And what happened was that when we became a country, one of the things the lawyers made sure was that we signed agreements saying we would honor all the existing British treaties. Uh, that's how the, the, the thing goes on. Because you're right, that's something they had to think about. And, that, and that's very important to note, that we made that, or our representatives back then, made that agreement. They yeah, said, and, we and, will honor these deals. And England insisted on it. England said, look, you can be a country if you want, but we're not going to take all the burden and let you guys have the gravy. You're going to take the burden as well. And, and we agreed to do that as a condition of becoming a country. Well, that certainly seems to make things a little more cut and dry, doesn't it? Yeah, it does indeed. Legally, they're, they're right in what they're doing. It's a, it's a real mess, no question about it, but they've dotted all the I's and crossed the T's. Thanks for the call, Ed. Thank you. Appreciate it, sir. And it just let's stress that again for people who don't understand that, 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 that there was and there, there, there is legislation that defined the the uh, what's the the assumption 
of the uh, of the deals that the British Crown had made. That's right. As part of the fabric of Confederation, the DNA Act, British yeah. North America. Yeah, it said oh, we will do this. We were we acknowledge that that the Britain no longer is playing a a uh, uh, the the you, what's, you, what, the main role in this. We're, we're going to pick it up. I think you referred earlier this morning to something to do with the monarchy having played a role in this decision. Um, didn't you say something about? the Queen's representative or the or something being involved in the court's decision? I wasn't sure if I, I caught that so. right. I don't remember that. Because I thought maybe that was something, some part of the court's desire to keep this continuous promise in oh, place. No, 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 no. What, what the court said was, the court said that in order, uh, the majority ag agreement said, that in order to uphold the honor and integrity of the Crown in its dealings with the Micmac. The Crown. Yes. That's, the, that's the term they use. But mm -hmm. which, of course... In that's our, us. that's us. But of course, we are they. from and that in that period of time, it wasn't. Yeah. It was. Yeah. So, so, you know, I've always, you know, sort of been a, a semi-supporter of the of the monarchy in the sense that that was one of the things that gave it such great power was that the dependence that the world had on any promise made by mm -hmm. uh, a representative of the queen in whatever country. I mean, we they even turned Hong Kong back over mm -hmm. to the Chinese after a hundred year deal. They mm -hmm. could have reneged on that, and they could have mm -hmm. had the same kind of problem we're having with the lobsters here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and. And so there is that element of, of involvement, and yet I still have a problem with, with, with treaties that were made hundreds of years ago, and as you say, they, were, they sat in abeyance for 200 years, and nobody really honored one side or the other. I think of all the problems we have as homeowners in the city, for example, if someone has an encroachment on your property that only existed not for 200 years, but for 20 years, you know, all mm -hmm. of a sudden the laws change. Your original property rights in your contract oh, don't right. count. That's very true. So, like, I mean, we're not applying the same principles. But, but the, the, the Hong Kong thing is an interesting example, though. I put it to you that Britain would never have left if China was still a mass of competing uh, uh, warlord fiefdoms over there and had no power of its own. Britain wouldn't have honored that. They'd still be there. You think so? Absolutely. And the Americans won't leave Guantanamo Bay either unless they think it's appropriate for them to do so at the expiry of the lease there. It's well, about power. It's not, a, it's not about treaties. It's about power. Often that's right. And, and to, to me, uh, people need to remember, you can change any law, you can change any treaty if you want, if both sides agree to it. You can do that any time you want. The only question is, when is it appropriate for one side to say, I'm out of here? We'll be back right after this. We're not out of here. We're coming back. And here's how anxious I am to have people come out to this. I'm going to ask Jeff and Bob in public, are you guys coming to the concert? I too? will come. Will you? Definitely. Give it a shot. All right, yeah. fabulous. Well, I've, seen, I've seen your legs before, so got to get more. <laughs> haven't heard me sing, though, have you? I haven't heard me oh, sing that. Not. Okay, all right, we'll do that. We'll take care of that. Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer with us on the, this edition of Left, Right, and Center. Um, ultimately, then, I think... Tim, question. Yes. You said, you, you said just before the break, you said it's about power, mm -hmm. whether a treaty is obeyed or not or agreed to or not. Yeah. Then what's the problem here? Like, why doesn't the government just exercise its power and do what it wants? Well, it's, it could. It, it could, but it, it isn't. Could. So, does that doesn't that speak to a falsehood to your statement no, that I it's don't just think about so. power? No, I don't think so. Because the, uh, the 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 power here, power isn't necessarily just military power, although often often that's what it is. But the government has to have some kind of uh, it has to have some kind of legitimacy credibility. of credibility or legitimacy, either legitimacy out of the end of a gun. Or the legitimacy in turn of, terms of the support of the of the people it, it purports to govern, and I submit to you in Canada there would be no support, or not no, no support. There wouldn't be sufficient support for the government to say to the natives, the party's over, boys. Your Canadians, you know, like it or lump it. So but, if a poll was issued tomorrow under the poll-driven Liberal government uh, and that, that said the opposite of what you just said, then that would be it for the Micmacs. No, I don't would, think so because uh, because you've still got the element of the government itself. The government does not 
entirely rule because of the polls. I mean, the government has a certain amount of flexibility. But I don't think the government could ignore 10 or 15 or 20 years' worth of polls that said 95% of Canadians want to end special status for natives. Uh, sooner or later, a government would be elected that would implement the results of that poll. Well, that's the message they've been getting for quite a while already, the failure of the Charlottetown Accord and the Meech Lake. I think if you went out in the street strongly, and, asked, that and, asked, what... and asked 100 Canadians, do you think that, you know, given all that you know about the natives and all that we've screwed them over the years, et cetera, et cetera, do you think that we ought to screw them one more time? I don't think you'd get 95% well, of Canadians who would question. agree to that. The question is, should they be treated equally before and under the law, the same as we are? But that Certainly, is another if, part of the if, question. If, do you mind if there uh, have breaking been... the law in order to achieve this? And I think most Canadians would say, no, it's not the way we do things. Maybe the Americans go into a parade whenever they feel like it. What do you mean, breaking it? Well, in this case, there are there are these treaties that were passed or that we signed, our representatives signed 200 years ago that remain in force. No, but like if we change the law, we haven't broken it. We've just changed it, as you said earlier. <laughs> well, like even we even me with the lawyer weasel words wouldn't say that <laughs> if you change a law to say that we get all the good stuff, but you don't get any of the good stuff anymore under this negotiation. Like to me, contract, breaking a law means that the, the law breaking it means that the law exists and someone it. is not obeying it. Or would let you away with that one. What can I say to that one? Well, gentlemen, what I can say is thank you to both of you for coming today and making this a very interesting show, as it always is. Thanks. It was fun. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure, and uh, it's always fun to have Bob and Jeff in. Uh, next week, uh, Left, Right, and Center, join us again on Wednesday from 11 to 12, and we'll take a look at one of the issues of the day from uh, philosophical, uh, but non... Uh, how do I say this? Uh, help me with this, guys. Come on, come on. It's philosophical, but it's not Philosophy 101. There's a, there's a better way to say <laughs> philosophy that. Philosophy 102. That's what it is. Philosophy 102. <laughs> Uh, on tomorrow's program, we've got uh, segment number four of our municipal series this week. We'll be talking to Brian Whitelaw, who's the systems administrator at City Hall, about Y2K. Is the city ready? We anticipate his answer will be yes. So we're going to move very quickly to Bernie Watts, who's the general manager at London Hydro. We've got lots of questions for Bernie. He'll be with us to answer them. Steve Peters, MPP, former mayor of St. Thomas, coming in to talk to him. What's it like to have moved from the mayor's chair to the back benches? Uh, very definitely the back benches of the opposition party. Uh, he's got a couple of issues he wants to raise, too. We've got some open phones. We've got treasures in the attic with Paul and Tiffany Gardner. And, boom, where you go. It'll be 12.30 before you know what time for Ask the Experts with Mike and Mike from Siskins, the law firm. So a busy day today, a busy day tomorrow. For Jeff and for Bob and for Ryan and for Kathleen and Christina and Dana and everybody here, it's Jim saying take care of each other, mind how you go, and please stay with us half hour from now after the news, which you need to hear Bud Polhill on Ask the Experts. Bye for now.